It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of June 1st, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. This week it's Corel Draw. And whenever I talk about Corel Draw, I always think back to a trip to New York City in the mid-1980s. At that time I was thinking about asking my manager to buy me a Mac because at the time, Macs were clearly able to handle graphics better than PCs did. While traveling to the Folio show at the 6th Avenue Hilton, I saw Corel Draw. And that was the end of my Mac envy. The Folio show was primarily for magazine publishers, editors, and writers. There were programs on subscriber conversion and retention, on writing, on editing. Not a lot, though, for graphics. But there was a trade show. And at the trade show, I saw Corel Draw. The drawing mode was wireframe only. In other words, you could see what would be if you did this in the real world. If you created something in the real world, you would see the wires that would be behind it. So you saw the wire frame. The only way you could see a full resolution example of the output was to press the F9 key. But it was amazing. Before I left New York, I'd ordered a copy of Corel Draw, and in the following couple of decades, I've regularly upgraded Corel Draw. I attended Corel World, became an instructor there for several years, rejoiced in some of the updates, those were usually the odd-numbered ones, and we persevered through the buggy updates, mostly the even-numbered ones. Uh, version 4, for example, stands out. And we survived Corel World 2001. It was in Boston. On the third day of Corel World, 2001, we watched the destruction of the World Trade Center and the attack on the Pentagon. So it's been quite a run. Corel Draw is probably the application I have spent the most time with over the past couple of decades, although not as much these days. Still, I'm always excited by a new version. Corel has stopped trying to fill each new release with lots of new features and emphasizes now reliability, performance, and ease of use. The first thing I noticed, though, before I even opened the box, was that the balloon is back. The balloon had been Corel's mark from the beginning, but sometime in the 1990s, the company decided that the logo should be updated, and the result was unfortunately created by someone who probably didn't exactly understand design. It looked for all the world like a urinal. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I haven't been able to find an example. I did look, but with X4, the balloon is back in color, and it's gorgeous. Well, the installation process is a bit different this time around, too. I didn't realize initially that I was supposed to look at each of the four tabs that are presented when you install the program. The installation seems to work quite well on XP systems, but not quite as well on Vista. The installation crashed with a nasty error message, some applications need elevated privileges to work correctly, and that's often the case with installation procedures. But I first started by disabling the antivirus program. Sometimes antivirus programs can get in the way of installation applications. And with Vista, there is a difference between running a program from an account with administrator privileges and running the program as the administrator. It's kind of the equivalent of running a process as root, on a Unix or Linux machine, and I determined that that's probably what needed to be done with the Corel Draw installation program. 
But I thought that running just the auto-run procedure as the administrator wouldn't work either. That's because the auto-run procedure calls the actual installer, and my thought was that the auto-run procedure would be unable to pass its enhanced credentials on to the actual installer. So I tracked down the installer piece and ran it as administrator. Well, that worked just fine. The trouble is this would flummox a lot of users immediately. I knew what I was looking at, knew how to fix the problem, so I lost only a couple of minutes in that journey down the dead-end lane. Maybe it would be wise for the auto-run program to detect that it's running on Vista and explain the problem to the user. Well, except for that, the installation was uneventful. At that point, I was ready for the test. With each new version of CorelDRAW, what I do is create a background that's a solid color. Then I create a graphic that I want to put on top of that solid color. I make the smaller box the same color as the background, put some text in it, usually put some arrows on it so I can tell where the edge of the box is, and then I create a file that will be anti-aliased, typically a GIF. When I drop the smaller image on top of the larger solid color background, what I want to see is just the text that I put in the smaller box. No outline. Unfortunately, earlier versions of Corel Draw created a full box outline because of the anti-aliasing, which was applied to the edges. It shouldn't be applied to the edges. In recent years, there have been some improvements. Now, instead of a box, we get lines on two sides, left and bottom. I stopped my test right there and decided to go take a look and see if anybody else did anything better. Actually, Adobe Illustrator handles it a lot worse. Adobe's Photoshop and Fireworks programs do exactly what they're supposed to, and Corel's PhotoPaint does exactly what it's supposed to. Now, Photoshop, Fireworks, and PhotoPaint are largely working with pixels, although Fireworks does do some work with vector images. So that's probably the difference. It seems to me that it shouldn't be that hard to write an anti-aliasing algorithm that would simply determine with any rectangular shape no anti-aliasing would be applied to row zero or column zero, and that no anti-aliasing would be applied to the maximum row and the maximum column. Apparently, that's a little more complicated than I would think. It's annoying, after all these years, that this feature still doesn't work right. There are relatively easy workarounds, of course, but they all add steps to the process They all take time, and they're all easy to forget if you're in a hurry. I also ran into some problems when trying to save files on a Vista machine. When I tried to replicate the problem on an XP machine, I wasn't able to. So my assumption is that the problem involves deficiencies in both Vista and Draw. The errors seem to be reduced, but not entirely eliminated when I moved to Vista SP1. In a parallel test on both platforms, I recorded 12 errors in 30 attempts to save a file on the Vista machine, but zero errors in more than 100 attempts on an XP machine. I haven't seen the right error on any other program, which rules out Vista as the sole cause of the problem, and I have seen the right error with X4 version of Corel on all disk drives attached to the Vista system, so that rules out a specific disk problem. Corel's software engineers did work with me on this for a while. They were unable to replicate the problem, 
And when I performed a software repair on the system, the number of incidents dropped sharply. Now I typically see one error and maybe 20 or 30 attempts to save. So the bottom line, this is essentially a non-issue. If the save fails, just save the file again. It'll work the second time. CorelDRAW occupies kind of an odd place in the market. It's a niche market. Actually, it's a niche in a niche in a niche because we have graphic designers, small group of people, graphic designers who don't use Macs, an even smaller group, and graphics designers who don't use Macs and who don't use Adobe products. That's a very small group. But maybe it's not the professional designers that Draw is designed for. Maybe it's the office worker. I've always found Draw's tools easier to understand and easier to use than those offered by Adobe Illustrator, and Draw allows users to create a multi-page publication. This leads some to believe, incorrectly by the way, that Draw is the equivalent of Illustrator and InDesign. In some sub-basement at 1600 Carling Avenue in Ottawa probably lies some code for Ventura Publisher, that's an application that Corel acquired from Xerox after Xerox ran it into the ground. In many ways, Ventura Publisher is still the most powerful publishing application on the planet. Compared to Ventura, Draw's page makeup capabilities are limited, and I certainly wouldn't use it to create a publication. But Draw might work for you if you're creating a small publication. It comes with some templates that place small publications within the reach of non-designers. These are publications that look good when compared to the work of professionals. They are exactly what people in small and medium-sized companies need when the boss says, hey, we need a brochure, but then can't or won't allocate funds needed to hire a designer. Using Draw's templates, a non-designer can create a brochure that, if not inspired, is at least not ugly. If you've wondered about the name of a particular typeface and Draw ships with a lot of high-quality typefaces, You'll want to know about Corel's What the Font website. From inside Draw, you can paste a bitmap that illustrates a typeface, and the site will help you identify it. You're actually identifying a typeface, by the way, not a font, because font means a particular typeface and style in a given size. Nobody seems to understand that term or use it properly anymore. Text wrap, that is flowing text around an image, is improved in this version, too. And Corel has continued to license Adobe's PDF technology so you can export a PDF document even if you don't own Adobe Acrobat. So the bottom line is that CorelDRAW and the entire graphics suite continues to be the value leader for Windows users. And it earns four cats for that. Vector imaging, bitmap image editing, typeface management, even a screen capture program. What's not to like in this suite? Earlier, I mentioned Vista Service Pack 1. The first service pack for Vista became available late in April. I waited until sometime in May to download it and install it. If you have Vista on a computer, you're going to want SP1. If you buy a new computer, it will probably come with Vista, although you should be able to find XP systems at least through the end of this year. If you have an older computer that's been happily running XP, my recommendation is that you not upgrade to Vista unless you are absolutely certain that the hardware you have will be compatible, not just with the low-end Vista Home, which doesn't include Aero, but also with versions that do include the new graphics presentation. After installing SP1, you will not be amazed by the performance increase, but 
you will be pleasantly surprised. Initially, SP-1 is available in just five languages, English, French, German, Japanese, and Spanish. In addition, the service pack will try to refuse to install on computers that use peripheral device drivers that Microsoft thinks are incompatible. Supposedly, this involves Creative Audigy's series of sound cards, but SP-1 installed on my system, which has an Audigy 2ZS. Following the installation, the sound card settings were for a two-speaker system instead of the 5.1 speaker system I have, but I was able to change that easily. Additionally, SP-1 should refuse to install on some systems with certain audio and display drivers from Realtek and Intel. If you're interested, Microsoft has a full list of still-not-supported devices, and there's a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you have Vista installed, you can download the service pack for free, or you can buy a boxed version if you want it from several online retailers. SP-1 will remove from Vista one of the largest blunders Microsoft has ever foisted on its customers, referred to as the kill switch. It deactivates important Vista components if the operating system believes that it might not be properly licensed. Well, unfortunately, the kill switch activated on properly licensed Vista systems and locked legitimate users out of Vista. Needless to say, those users were not particularly pleased. Another nice job for Microsoft. Overall, the service pack contains more than 300 fixes. If you want to see the entire list, there is also a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. SP1 improves Vista's speed and stability a bit, allowing systems to wake faster from hibernation, boot faster, and shut down faster. Still, the shutdown is a minute or more, and on a Linux machine, it's about 20 seconds. In addition, users will now be permitted to run the BitLocker encryption tool on multiple hard drives. That was limited to just the C drive previously. If you have modem-based dial-up Internet service, well, you're going to need to do one of two things if you want this update. Either bite the bullet and arrange for faster service or request a CD from Microsoft. You don't want to attempt a download that's been advertised to take nearly 18 hours because invariably the connection will drop after about 17 hours and 39 minutes, meaning that you have to start over from the beginning. Fortunately, I have a faster connection. I started the download, went to the post office to mail a letter, and the download was complete when I returned. The post office isn't very far away, by the way. The download process itself offers two options, either run from the Internet or download. In my opinion, only a fool would ever try to run a 435-megabyte installation file over the Internet, even with a fast connection. Needless to say, I saved the copy to my downloads directory on drive N. Once the download was complete, I ran the SP-1 installer. Microsoft said that I should be aware of some things before proceeding, so I followed the link that they provided. Nothing to be found there that was particularly troubling about the update, so I proceeded. I accepted the license. The installation process began with warnings that the process could take an hour and that the computer would restart several times. The process took about 50 minutes, and there were at least five restarts. Following the final restart, the updater displayed a success message. And in the weeks since, I've decided that SP-1 clearly improves Vista's performance, but it's still really a mixed bag. XP is faster. Vista is more secure. Vista is far more attractive, smoother, and perhaps I could even say elegant. I've heard from people who have purchased new machines with Vista, 
and Office 2007. Most of them like the way things work. Complaints largely have come from power users and possibly from those who don't much care for Microsoft anyway, but who are forced to use Windows because Microsoft owns the desktop space in corporate America. With SP1 installed, Vista isn't quite as needy. It doesn't bother me with as many continue messages. The overall responsiveness seems better, too. Eh, That's a perceptual thing, though. It's always subject to the placebo effect. Did this really make something faster, or am I just thinking it's faster? And some of the things that the Windows Explorer used to annoy me by doing no longer seem to be a problem. The trouble is, I can't tell you exactly what they changed. I just know that the level of annoyance dropped a notch or two, and I don't have to fix the way Vista chooses to display things as often as I used to. But I've also noticed there are some occasional disconnect-reconnect signals for USB devices. I'm not quite sure which devices are doing this, because the drop-and-restore events are so fast I can't determine the cause or what it's applied to. This might not be a Vista problem or even an SP1 problem. It might simply be a hardware malfunction that's currently intermittent. Bottom line, if you have a Vista computer, get SP1. If you don't have Vista on computer, just wait for Windows 7 unless you have to buy a new machine that comes with Vista. Around the end of May, I received an email from a company I regularly buy from. They were offering Seagate Barracuda serial ATA hard drives, the OEM version, which means the drives would ship without cables and such. 750 gigabyte drives, $120. Yes, if you do the math, that is 16 cents per gigabyte. If you've been around computers long enough, you'll remember thinking that it was a great deal when you got a $500 one-gigabyte hard drive. And as I've mentioned a time or two, my first external shoebox-size hard drive that carried a price north of $1,500 was just 16 megabytes. So the cost of storage has dropped from $94 per megabyte to 16 thousandths of a cent per megabyte. That's almost a 100% reduction in price. I put a screenshot of the offer on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The offer isn't particularly remarkable. It's one of several that I receive every month offering hard drives at prices that, even though I know better than to be astonished by them, still astonish me. The current crop of drives are far faster, far smaller, and far more reliable than the drive I bought back in the 1980s. To look at the numbers a little bit differently... 750 gigabytes of hard drive space would have filled a huge room in the 1980s and would have cost nearly $4.5 million, and you wouldn't have wanted to see the electric bill for running that for a month. Some of the other offers in the ad, well, you could boost your notebook computer's hard drive to 200 gigabytes for about $140, or you could pick up a 500 gigabyte external hard drive. These are really handy for backup for just $100. At a time when digital photos and digital video are eating up storage at unprecedented rates, now is exactly the right time for hard drives to be so inexpensive that it's hard to understand how anybody makes a profit on them. All I can think is they lose money on every drive, but they make it up in volume. In nerdly news, I was talking with some geeky folks recently, being the oldest in the group. I remember the 80-column punch cards we used to use, 40-megabyte disk drives that sat on the floor, and computers that took up more space than a FEMA trailer. 
That's because the computer, in this case a Honeywell 200, had no disk drives, five or more tape drives, and true core memory with 64 KB in a cabinet about 6 inches wide, 12 inches deep, and 18 inches tall. Today, you'll find 2 gigabytes of memory in something about the size of your thumbnail. Well, this week, Woot offered a no-name 2-gigabyte microSD card for less than $10. I didn't buy one, and neither did a lot of people, because the manufacturer was a complete unknown. The thought of buying 2 gigabytes of memory for less than $10 is not too far shy of amazing. I saw the first 16-megabyte thumb drive at PC Expo in New York City. $50 seemed like a huge bargain for so much memory in such a small package. After all, that would have been the equivalent of about 15 floppy disks. Now, thumb drives that hold 4 gigabytes are widely available. Just walk into your local micro center or fries, and you'll find them as impulse items at the cash register. Price? 10 bucks. Maybe 20 bucks. A friend in California recently sent me an image that I put on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It's a 1.6 megabyte high-density floppy that's been used as the cover for a notebook. Inside the spindle hole is a 2 gigabyte SanDisk device. To put this into perspective, the SanDisk card is able to hold more than 1,200 times the amount of data that that floppy could have held. Wow. <laughs> well, yeah. More than 14 million Comcast subscribers lost their ISP's web portal for several hours this week, so they were unable to request support, check their email, or use newsgroups. About 11 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, Comcast's site was replaced by a note that claimed that hackers had roxed Comcast. I'm sure they're quite proud of themselves. Comcast says the problem was resolved within just a few hours. Private information, email messages, for example, were apparently not compromised, and users were able to obtain their email through programs that connected through a POP3 server. So how did this happen? Well, hackers apparently convinced the folks at Network Solutions to make changes that redirected traffic from Comcast servers to other servers. Network Solutions has made this kind of error before. Comcast says that it's working with law enforcement authorities to figure out what happened. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of June 1st, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website. That's www.techbiter.com. And you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.